Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, friends. Welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast. Uh, this is going to be our edition of the U.S. Open, uh, wrapping it up as we've had a few days to digest a phenomenal Grand Slam event that just took place. And joining me is the Hall of Famer writer, a good friend of the podcast by now, uh, Steve Flink. How are you today, Steve? Good, Vance. It's nice to be back with you again. It was, it was a really, uh, I, I think of the word pulsating, but from beginning to end, there was it was pretty exhilarating stuff. Certainly the, the best first week in my memory of ever attending, a, a, ever, ever at a major in my experience, and particularly because this happened in the day and age of 32 seeds, because in the old days, we would always have 16 seeds, obviously, and there was more potential for dramatic developments in the first week because you had 16 fewer players protected. But for this to happen at, at a time of 32 seeds, I found that really uh, very um, uplifting, uplifting. I didn't, you know, I just felt like one day after another in the first week, it was, a, it was like an episode of Can You Top This? Because each day would, the next day would be better than the previous day. It was phenomenal. And then we had a great uh, ride down the home stretch as well. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, it was uh, immensely awesome to watch, especially, um, you know, if we start with the men's side, um, you know, definitely the overwhelming story was Djokovic going for the calendar year Grand Slam. And obviously coming in, you know, we were thinking no Rafa, no team, no Nadal. And um, boy, did that first week really deliver with a lot of youth coming through. And then, of course, we had uh, Djokovic coming extremely close. So I guess, uh, you know, take it in whichever direction you like. But, uh, you know, yeah, how did you... let, let me have a do, do a brief editorial, if you don't mind, because you use the expression calendar year Grand Slam, which everybody was doing. And as a historian, that that grates on me, that phrase, because to me, that's the only kind of Grand Slam. And so therefore, when everybody says calendar year Grand Slam, the implication is that there are other kinds that might be in the same league or comparable, and they're not. And I think uh, that I, I wish that I wish that phrase were gone. And I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to pick on you, Bunch, because you really know your stuff. I just mean that every, that that became the prevailing expression. And I wish people would just say the Grand Slam, period. But now let's Let's move on to uh, Djokovic. Uh, I thought, uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts. I thought, you know, he did a really remarkable job of overcoming the pressure. You could see, you could feel the strain. You could sense the, the, the inner turmoil that was going on with him match after match, that it was really sort of very difficult to wipe this out of his mind. And he didn't want, it was an opportunity he did not want to elude his grasp. So we saw signs of it even against Rune in the first round. Here's this kid and they're screaming Rune and he thought they were booing him. And so, so, so frankly did Rune's coaches. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't Novak's fault, but 
he misinterpreted what they were doing, which was just to raise the spirits of the kid. But nonetheless, he had no business losing a set to that kid in the first round. And he did. And I think that was all about uh, Novak's psyche. Nothing, not that much to do with the kid who was, who was a brilliant prospect, but should not have won the second set where Novak was serving for a 5-3 lead. Okay, then we move on. And he had a straight set win in the second round, pretty uneventful, solid match. And then from the third round on, as you know, Vonch, it was really uh, pressure-packed for him, if I can use a cliche, because it started with Kane Ishikori, you know, and Novak, of course, going for having 17 wins in a row against him now. And Kane had last beaten him at the 2014 U.S. Open. And, and coming off a two-in-love win at the Olympics, you figured probably an, another, another straight set win for Novak. Not as easy as two-in-love, but something along the lines of four, three, and four. Didn't happen that way. Dropped the first set. Worked hard to finish him off in four. And then and then that just sort of set the stage. There was more to come. Brooksby, the young American, took a 6-1 first set up Novak that was all about anxiety and apprehension and a very solid performance from Brooksby. But Novak was way off his game, uh, pressing, making unforced errors off the forehand, just not finding his range. And then he turned that around very comfortably the last three sets. And then, of course... Now, now we're getting down to the to the home stretch, and uh, we, we had the Berrettini match. So now for the third match, and where he loses the first set, except this time I thought he didn't play a bad first set at all. It was just a hard fought first set, lots of break points. He finally got broken at five all, but he returned well the whole set and played well enough to win it. And Berrettini did a good job to squeeze it out. But from there, I thought he played three brilliant sets the mm-hmm. rest of the way. That afterwards, he thought those were his three best sets of the tournament at that time. And I would agree because the returning was, was just uh, ineffable. You, could, you, you can't, you, there's no adjective that could describe exactly what he was doing out there, but so many great first serves he was getting back and getting them back with interest. And, and that carried him, him into Zarev. And I thought he played a, a very good match. Zarev started out magnificently in the first set his serve was pretty untouchable for a set and Novak was struggling a bit lost his serve once and and just couldn't get it back and once again made his move early in the second set as he'd done against Nishikori as he'd done against Brooksby that was a pattern where he would turn things around pretty quickly early in the second sets of these matches and start taking control and that's what he did against Sarah then I thought they had an ex the two of them had an excellent third set which Novak finally won in the what was the best game of the match featuring that 53 stroke rally. And he finally broke him and, and won the set six, four yet Zara much to his credit came back at one break early in the fourth and won that before Novak pulled away in the fifth when he won 24, the first 30 points to go up five love and before Zara won a couple of games. So there we are right. quick, quick roundup there for you. And then we get to the final bunch. And right. I, I thought he would peak for it. I thought uh-huh. he I didn't think he'd be too drained because I thought, you know, he had that day off. And you think about you, you watch all these Masters 1000s events as I do. And when they have a long two and a half, three hour match, say in a Masters 1000 with no recovery day, I think that can be a really difficult turnaround, tougher than this. I thought he would physically come out of it better. But in my view, physically, we never know how much nerves and the physical part are intertwined. But something was clearly off in the final in a different way, by the way. I don't know how you felt. I thought it was a different way, different 
losing first set effort than any of the others. Sure, Brooksby, he didn't play well at all. You might compare it to that, but he was in trouble immediately. He was up 40-15 on his serve in the first game of the match against Medvedev and uh, lost it from 40-15. And then he nearly got broken in the third game and he managed to, to hold on and keep it to one break, but he was never near on Medvedev's serve. And he only won three points on Medvedev's serve in five service games from the Russians. So that, and he just seemed very slow off the mark. He didn't seem to be reacting well. I mean, Medvedev, think of the, of the way that Berrettini serves and the way Zarev serves. And Medvedev, maybe he spots his serve a bit better than them at times. You could argue that, but I, I wouldn't call it a better serve than either one of those guys. And yet, uh, Novak was no, just was not reading it well and was not reacting to it well, which was a bigger problem. And then I thought he had his one chance early in the second, uh, the, the two break, the, the, the second and fourth games when he had love 40 to, to go up to love. And when he had two break points in the fourth game that could have given him three one. And the first time I think he had himself to blame because he, he got to a drop shot on the love 40 point and didn't do enough with it. He sliced his forehand instead of coming over it and method at pass. Then on the third break point, he missed that easy back and slice into the net. He was infuriated with himself for that. Those chances were very critical because the crowd, as you know, was effusive. They were euphoric. They just they they were rooting for history. They were rooting for Novak. He'd earned their respect after early in the tournament. They maybe were more upset minded, but they really they had they seemed to really want him to have the achievement and they were on his side now. And he was in no position to take advantage of it because he just could not rouse himself. There was he didn't have that spark. And Medvedev, to his credit, Vanch, I thought he really played it, you know, strategically he played it very wisely. And and then he conducted, he comported himself with a lot of poise. Uh, he didn't let the crowd, he didn't want to let the crowd get excited. He didn't allow them to because he kept the lead. And then he started pulling away in the second set, went all the way to five one in the third. And Novak made that comeback. And then, of course, that was the only time he broke him was when Medvedev served a double fall in match point and serving for the match. And Novak managed to squeeze out a break. And then finally Medvedev closed him at 5-4. And we didn't know it. But, of course, Medvedev would later reveal that he was cramping at that stage. Right. He did a terrific job of not allowing us to see that. I mean, he yes, he walked a little bit funny. But there was no indication to me of any kind of severe cramping. And clearly he was. I don't think he's not going to make up that story. So it would have been fascinating if Djokovic had somehow been able to. to that's a tall order to come from two breaks down. And unless Medved had been literally been lying on the court and unable to physically get up and serve. And it never reached that point. So I thought it was a question that Medvedev gave a thoroughly professional performance that maybe he was due to win a major after losing a five-setter to Rafa on the same court two years earlier and losing to Novak earlier this year in Australia, being the number two ranked player in the world and someone we know is a great, great hardcore player. So you can look at it from that standpoint and no question he deserved it, as, as Djokovic fully acknowledged later. But in turn, I don't think we saw the essential Djokovic. I thought that was the saddest part of it. If he loses the bid for the slam, the grand slam, you you wish he could have performed more the way he hoped he would when he said Friday night after his semifinal win over Zarev, over Zarev I'm going to treat this match on Sunday like it's the last one I'll ever play. Right. And I really meant that. And I think his whole his whole hope and 
that's that's what was in his mind was that's what he wanted to bring out of himself but he didn't he was not able to even come close to doing that and i think if he had and the crowd had gotten a bit worked up and he built a little of a lead especially in that second set if he'd gone up a break and had something to work with it, it could have been interesting but i just believe that physically he did not that the energy was not there and he alluded to it later he said Medvedev had more energy than i have therefore Medvedev had more inspiration than Novak did. So the combination of the energy and the inspiration and Medvedev responding to the occasion, Novak surprisingly flat. That's why we got the one-sided result. Now that I've talked yeah. so much, give me, give me your thoughts and we'll, we'll, we'll bounce it around a little bit. Yeah, no, thank you. That was a great rundown of the, of Djokovic's entire tournament. And, you know, I'm in total accord about you, uh, you know, talking more that it was more about uh, Djokovic you know, being physically compromised in a sense, because right. having to come back from all those. So, Vance, let me, let me interrupt you. Just, what percentage, because I've had this debate with others, that's what a debate, discussion, I should say. Right. That's what your viewpoint. How much of it was physical? How much of it was the emotional toll it had taken? Uh, uh, the toll on him after the entire year and the build up for this moment and being mm-hmm. one match away. What percentage would you put on each? Um, you know, that's a good question. It's pretty tough to gauge. I would say it's a combination of definitely a combination of both. I lean towards it being a little bit more of the physical side. I um, agree. I lean oh, kind oh, of 60, 40, if you want yeah. a percentage, but yeah. uh, you know, because definitely the way he's, like you said, it, uh, in his press, in his uh, post-match interview, after he beat Zarev in that five setter and he played some of the best tennis in that fifth set, he he said that he's going to throw it all on the line. It's gonna, He's going to play it like it's the last match of my career. But, right. you know, and I don't generally read too much into this, Steve, but I noticed that in the in the on-court interview, you know, definitely he looked a little bit more nervous and he was breathing quite heavily. And, you know, you could see it even in the first game of the match. He's up 40-15 and he misses. Oh, you, you, know, you, 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 Vance, you talking about the pre-match interview? Yeah, um, I'm sorry. Yeah. I think I said post-match, but I meant pre-match, um, you know, just no, before no, they're no. able to walk on the court. Yeah, you see, right, right. Medvedev looks supremely confident to me and he, he just... He looked a lot more prepared than he than he had, you know, it being his third major final. And obviously we have the Australian Open final to go by. But I, I agree with you, especially also the, the first few games of the second set, um, the three break points that he had at Love 1, Love 40, particularly the drop shot and the, the backhand yeah. slice in the net, you know, afterwards where he was kind of thumping his chest, you know, as he if to say, like, just get, get those legs moving, you know, because it well, exactly. wasn't happening because- for him. Ivanchi did say afterwards that he had, he said, I had no legs and he said, and, and he, and it didn't say no, sir, but close to no serve. And, and that, that was in passing. And that was after being very complimentary of Medvedev and, and, and certainly giving him his due, but those were revealing remarks because a a Djokovic without, with no legs is not Djokovic. Right. we We saw that many times when he was trying to come to the net, on, you know, approach shots that are, you know, it's generally not his forte, you know, and he started doing it more and more as the match went across. I thought he was pretty successful at serving and volleying. That's about the only uh, thing, you know, he was. So, you, you, you couldn't, I couldn't agree more. The serve and volley was effective, although a, a bit tiring. Right. It does take something out of you, but he felt like he had no other choice, but at least it worked. But the coming forward uh, during the point, instead, I, I wanted him to grind more. He didn't have it in him. I wanted him to sort of show Medvedev, okay, you can be a brick wall back there, but so can I. And I'll break you down because I have the drop shot and I have the variation and I have, I've got more 
ability to finish off points with winners than, than you do. So just prove it to me that you can stay with me like Zarev did for 53 shots. Just prove it to me. He didn't have that kind of a defiant attitude and, and therefore he didn't go to that game plan. And I, I echo your thoughts. I've been saying the same thing for days now. I didn't like him pressing forward from midcourt like that so often on approach shots that were not good enough and playing into Medvedev's hands as a result. And I think when he did that, he signaled to Medvedev that he didn't have the endurance. He didn't have it in him that day to stay with him. And let's face it, we all would have been anticipating many, many long rallies along the lines of what we saw in the Zarev match. And Zarev, to his credit, was he was willing to try to stay with Novak in those exchanges, but Novak also stood up to him and said, okay, if this is the way you want to play, I'll, I'm game. So you got to some very important points. Djokovic, that was not playing the match on his terms. And it was also playing directly in the Medvedev's hands because he's a very good counterattacker. You know, he, he knows how to pass as well. He doesn't overplay them. He keeps them down low. He handled that just beautifully and, and, and put Novak in some awkward spots at the net when Novak tried to do that. No, that was, yeah. to me, was a telltale sign that Djokovic was playing the match that way. Uh, it, it, that's why when he said later, I had no legs, I said, okay, that explains it because his movement did look very sluggish for him, both on the return, the quick move to his right or left to make a return. And then during the rallies, the side to side movement. And even right. if, even if you recall the second break point that would have given him three, one, he had those two break points and Medvedev had a great back end down the line on one of them deep into the corner. That was pretty tough to stop. That you was interrupted argue. by the, the music and they had to replay yeah. the point. That's um, right. Exactly. But he still Medvedev ended up hitting a pretty good deep back end down the line. I'll give him that one maybe. But then on the other on the other break point, right. Novak hit a pretty good pass. And Daniel made that little semi drop volley short off his back end. And Djokovic got to it but couldn't make the forehand pass. Again, maybe at top of the line, Djokovic, you know, with his speed and his clutch play, maybe he makes that pass. We'll, right. we'll never know. That was those were the moments you remembered he, because he just he didn't have his customary speed, the alacrity around the court. It was just it was missing. And that's such a leading feature of his game. Again, Medvedev is so smart, Bunch, that he was onto this. He could see this. He could sense this. And I think it really relaxed him. Now, not enough to prevent him from having cramps at the end, but that's a different thing. What happened at the end, I think, was more about, my God, I'm, I'm this close to the U.S. Open. And, nice. and, and that, yeah. That could happen to anybody, and and so I don't put that much stock in that. But the rest of the time when he was carrying himself so c- confidently, I think it's because he's able to – he knew this was not the same Djokovic that was pummeling him at the Australian Open and hitting good – running around and hitting forehand inside in winners and, and really taking charge in rallies, using his drop shot, and then outthinking Medvedev. He was the one who outthought him there by going down the middle. This time, Medvedev tried to do the same to Novak and succeeded. So it was right. it, it was too bad. I, my, my regret is that we didn't get the hard-fought close contest we thought we would, which might have gone Djokovic's way because that's where he's at his very best. Is The tighter the match, you know, the more pressure there is, that's, that's where he demonstrates time and time again why he's been the best clutch player of this generation far and away better than either Rafa or Roger by the way not to downgrade them look at the number of close matches he's won against both of them that you see that he thrives under those circumstances but he never put himself 
right. in the circumstances here. It just never came down to that. And so that's a combination of his own ineptitude on the day and, and a really first-rate performance from, from Medvedev. Yep, you size it up perfectly. And then I also want to give a lot of credit to Medvedev because he didn't give Djokovic much to work with. Um, no. Hitting it really deep down the middle, taking away Djokovic's angles. Yeah. And then, and then I, I really think, I don't know how, how you felt, but I really think he's improved his passing shots quite a bit. And he's, he's um, counterattacking. Medvedev has, you're saying. Right. Uh, I agree. He's, he's no, improved agree. his pass, passing shots to where yeah. his first ball is, he manages to somehow get topspin on it and he gets yeah. it really low at your feet. And then he sets up a beautiful, you know, second shot. And then I also think, you know, apart from, uh, you know, since I'm, I'm liking to compare it to 2019, I do think, you know, had Djokovic, you know, picked up some steam and some momentum in that first uh, couple of games of the, se- of the second set, we could have seen a match, a grinding match like their 2019 Australian Open match, which is a, you know, very tight four setter. Right, right. Djokovic exactly. One in three, exactly. three and a half hours. And that, that's exactly. the kind of match I was expecting, but, you know, it didn't quite pan yeah, out that way. I was too. That's a match, interestingly enough, that John McEnroe brings up on television constantly. He always remembers that. And it, it was fascinating because, yeah, they had grueling rallies in that match, even more so than their final this year. And, and Djokovic was even grinning a bit near the end because he knew that they both were so exhausted from it. And he managed to close them out in four. But, yeah, I would have expected it. And had he been feeling better, obviously, had he been feeling stronger, we would I think that's what we would have gotten because – he would have wanted to test Daniel in that way. Right. And, and again, it, I just, how many drop shots did we even see from Novak the whole match? That's, that's also revealing because he wasn't putting himself in position in the rallies. He should have had that as a, a nice, clear option to go to. And I thought the backhand are- slice wasn't working very well for him, you know, because no. he likes to get Daniel moving forward into the net and, you know, make Daniel dig out those really low, uh, yeah, right off that short slice. And that just wasn't happening for him. No, he didn't have the bite on it. And then the one that he missed on the break point was just badly executed and he put it in the net. So, right. yeah, that again, you know, you want your legs to be fresh. I mean, you remember that little backhand slice exchange he had? I bet you do, Vanch, in the last point of the Wimbledon final against Berrettini. Mm-hmm. Berrettini yep. was throwing some vicious slices at Novak and Novak was saying, OK, and he was coming right back with a slice and he eventually won that little skirmish. And right. that's how he closed out the match. And so... But that, again, the legs have got to be there. And uh, I, 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 I don't know whether, you know, you could argue that nerves, nerves led to the physical depletion. You'll never know. But I, t- I tend to agree with you. I put I weighed it much more about 60 percent on the physical side. And mm-hmm. uh, and, he, and therefore, he just could not get himself going physically. And that 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 took something that 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 really frustrated him you could see yeah. he was so flat and so disappointed we, th- he had the one moment where he smashed his racket I kind of hope and the crowd was actually very sympathetic it wasn't one of those days where they were going to come down on him for that but but even that could not get him going on this particular day right. and uh, I think if he would have broken one of those times you would have seen the fist pump there would have been something something would have come out of him there would have been that emergent moment where he he said, okay, I, I'm ready now. This is it. I needed that. But he could not get, he just could not put himself in that position. And then again, right. Medvedev obviously was also not giving it away on this day. That, and yeah. that's, and don't expect him to, by the way. I don't I mean, I don't, he served, he served impeccably, you know, 16 aces. And I, I really like how he, he wasn't just going out after big second serves, like without any purpose. I mean, right. he, he was really picking the right moments to do it. 
And it, it the cost of more double faults, but I felt like it was a good game plan in the end because, he, you know, his second serve was getting killed by Novak in Australia. And so that was, yeah. a good, you know, it and he, I really liked how he was mi- mixing it up using slice and, you know, really he was, he was going after that second serve and, you know, he won 58% of his second serve points. Yeah, because, that was amazing. That was an amazing number. And obviously part of it is exactly what you're talking about. The variety on the second serve, some very big ones, some, some of them, kickers some of them slice he, he, they, they, Novak couldn't know exactly what was coming on the other hand it also that number also tells you that Novak was subpar because yeah. even Daniel using that t- those tactics should he should probably be between 45 and 50 percent tops right. Djokovic uh, didn't have the legs on the return to you know to lunge oh, into them and he didn't have the explosivity right. which is what which is what makes his return so good so I feel Absolutely. like Absolutely the, not. The legs and they're the they're the key. They were the key to everything, and and I think that's yeah. why he brought it up. And uh, listen, it'll it'll be. You no, know, I actually think he played some of his best tennis, believe it or not, in that last game. But um, you know, in the first couple of points of that last game, and yeah. have really uh, hung with him there. And, yeah. You know, because it's almost like because I I definitely want to touch on the moment in the changeover where you know it all came out for him and he started solving yeah. into his towel and the crowd yeah. so you know euphorically behind him and. You know, it, that changeover was so fascinating because it started out with him kind of laughing and smiling. And then it just turned into these tears. And you just you just really felt for him that, you know, here he is in this position, 27 out of 27 wins coming into the final. And he's worked so hard to get here. And finally, he's got the whole crowd behind him, you know, at a U.S. Open, which is, you know, which just never really happens at New York. for wow. him. You know, he mentioned it even in his post-match. Um, even in the you know trophy ceremony, that it just means so much to him, to that it, yeah. it feels like he's the happiest man alive because of getting that appreciation from the crowd. And you know, I just I just yeah. wonder if that release at the end actually helped him, you know, finally play better. But it was just too late in that last game. I, I, I don't I don't think it helped him that much because I think he it, I think it would have helped him earlier if he could have gotten some leads. Yeah. And we'll never know. But I think he was very genuine when he said that. But I think, yeah, I, I think the other reason it was he was so appreciative, Vanch, is that he's played on that court. And, and frankly, it isn't just the Open, by the way. He had, mm-hmm. he tends to get some nice support in Australia at times. Australia, because, yeah. He had the crowd behind him in Australia against Medvedev in the final as well. He did. He did. So he does get some support over there. He, he, he rarely gets it in Roland Garros. He's had not had great support at Wimbledon despite winning the title six times. And when he played Roger years ago, that crowd was 99.9% for Federer. And that was a very difficult atmosphere. And then at the Open, aside from the run to the final in 07, when he was doing his impersonations of the other players uh, after the quarterfinals, he did a long session with the interviewer for USA Network, Michael Barkan. And, uh, they loved him then because he was new, fresh, different. They they appreciated, they loved the imitations. Then things kind of turned in the years ahead. Mm-hmm. And the worst moment for him was 2015 playing Federer in the finals there. And that crowd was even loud, more vociferous and and more highly charged and had that edge that even the Wimbledon 19 crowd did not have it. Djokovic told some people later that his hands were shaking during that match. It was It was so difficult to deal with that crowd coming down, what he felt was coming down on him. So that's why I think this was so gratifying. I'm glad you brought it up. Mm. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, I think Vanch, if he had had any idea, this, nobody asked him in the press conference and Medvedev, Medvedev had not come in yet. Novak was there first. 
So I wonder if he had known, if somehow he had sensed it and seen it in Daniel with the cramping, you know, he might not have allowed himself to cry at the changeover. He might have been thinking, look, this I've got to get every ball back this next game. This guy's in trouble. Daniel's. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns in real trouble but i don't think he had any idea do you i i no, think I don't. and i think medvedev that was very professional of him to somehow be disciplined enough to not uh, not give anything away with his expressions or mannerisms so that the crowd or novak would know that he was uh, troubled physically right. and so but i wonder whether novak you know we'll, we'll never know i had he had he been aware of that at the 5-4 changer right i think might, maybe his his mind, there would have been a different mindset but still, he, he'll take that with him. That would be the kind of the balancing factor to the deep disappointment of the loss. Uh, but I think he'll always regret that he that he didn't have more left for this. And I'm I'm curious to hear more for him from him down the road. Thanks. He was very sporting in the interview that day. He did a terrific job of lauding Medvedev and explaining his own deficiencies and just he was quite gracious. Yeah. But there wasn't a long time for great reflection and it was too soon afterwards. I want to hear more from him down the road about, you know, was he aware the day before? I mean, not an injury because there was no evidence of an injury, but was he, did he sense even that morning that he just didn't have it? I mean, he, he knows himself better than anybody. He knows how he wants to feel on these big occasions, the energy that he needs to summon. So was there a sense going out there not that usual feeling of I'm going to I'm I'm going out there to win today and, and nobody's going to stop me as opposed to I hope I can somehow find it within myself it maybe even surprise myself and come up with the performance I need I'd, I'd love to hear from him on that because right. we certainly see him anywhere near his best yeah I mean it's definitely uh definitely something hopefully he'll reflect on you know in a few months down the road but you know just it kind of begs the question for me, two questions kind of come in. And one is, you know, how much more is he going to play the rest of this year? Because you have Medvedev, who's about 2000, less than 2000 points now behind right. in the, in the race right. points, race yeah. to Turin. And yeah. so, you know, and there's Indian Wells coming up and there's Paris and there's the ATP finals, obviously. So then, it, you know, the question becomes how much more does Novak play? Does he want the seventh year end number one? Because that would be a record. Does he also want to win the ATP finals for the first time since 2015? And, you know, does he play Indian Wells? Because yeah, if Medvedev plays Indian Wells and he wins, you know, then suddenly we have a big yeah. race. Like, 
Towards yeah, the I don't. I'd be. I'd be surprised. I'd be a little surprised if Medvedev played Indian Wells. I could be wrong. I'd be surprised if Novak played Indian Wells. I don't expect to see either one of them there quite that soon. I could be wrong. Hmm. I expect good- to see Medvedev there. Um, I just. I'm not sure about Novak. Well, even Medvedev, I think, may want to be saving himself for a little bit down the stretch and defending Paris and being at his best in London. But we'll see. We'll see. I just feel like Djokovic would like that seventh number one for sure. I mean, what meant the most to him was the most weeks. But I think hopefully people around him would make him understand that he's not breaking Sampras' record of six straight years. But seven total is a great record to have. And, And he came so close... 2016, it all came down to one match between him and Murray in the ATP finals. And he was nervous that day and he didn't play well. Murray Murray had had an incredible run post-US Open, winning everything and and beat Novak in straight. And then a couple of years ago, it looked like he ended the year number one, but Rafa finished better than he did. And by Rafa winning the Open, he he kind of carried the momentum forward and he he finished number one. So there have been a couple of really close number two finishes for Novak. I I would think he would want this one, but I also think he's more interested in getting back to Australia and winning a 10th and getting the 21st major, which he was unable to secure here. Those will be bigger priorities than finishing number one, because he even alluded a little bit. He even seemed to be thinking that Daniel was close to number one now. He obviously didn't know the points. No clue on the points. You and I do. Right. So still a lot. It's still a, a decent lead. It's not 500 points. Mm. 1900 is a lot. So obviously right. Dan has to put on some big wins on the board with Novak, you know, not, not winning much at all. It'll mm. be really interesting to see how motivating that is. I don't think he's going to be that motivated necessarily by winning the year end championship so much as maintaining the lead and getting right. number one. So, I and it'd be not to have the title if he could get it. And then we also don't know, uh, uh, how, how, determined is Medvedev to finish this year strong or is he saying to himself no I'll get number one next year sometime I, I know that's going to come my way but what I really want to do is be fresh I want to go back to Australia and win a second straight major is, he, is that his priority too as opposed to playing a lot now in the fall putting mm-hmm. his energy into that and there and maybe getting number one now and then going to Australia maybe a, a bit a bit w- uh, mentally weary so it's, it's hard to know because the along right. the offseason not that long mm-hmm. so we'll see that's definitely that's, alluded in his press presser he talked about indian wells saint petersburg and then the two mass and then the paris and the year end. so yeah i mean it, it, it remains to be seen uh you know what his schedule looks like yeah i mean the they announced in the tournament during the tournament they put out the tournament put out it there was some kind of a press release put out saying that novak had entered indian wells too but again they right. enter it doesn't mean they're gonna doesn't mean they're gonna play yeah yeah, they could change their minds. Either one of them could. It's an awkward time for Indian Wells. I'm happy they're having it, but uh, right. they're gonna, they're, I don't think they're going to get, they're going to lose out on some top players for Definitely. sure. Yeah. Yep. And then obviously then it become the other hypothetical is, you know, Novak playing the Olympics. How much of that, you know, you, you think had an impact on him being physically worn out by the time the final came, came about? Because obviously he had that heartbreak, you know, you can't really fault him for playing the Olympics because it's his country and obviously he's, he was going for the gold medal. There was history on the line. And, but just the way that ended with him being up a set in a break against Zverev and then losing 10 of the next 11 games. Um, and then, you know, losing the bronze medal match. And then just him not playing Cincinnati or Toronto, which he's, you know, he's never skipped before. So, you know, coming in with that bit of rest and then having well, to come yeah. through this. 
I'm sure it contributed to a lot of those first sets lost at the open because, right. you know, didn't have the kind of recent match play. The last thing he had played was the Olympics. Then the second, so there, there's no doubt that wasn't ideal. And, mm-hmm. and that trip to Tokyo is just a long trip. It's always yes. a long time. So it's draining just going there. Then, yes, then you have the, 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 the disappointment of, of getting, of look, rolling through the field and then being 6-1-3-2 against Zarev and losing eight games in a row and then 10 of 11. That was devastating. And then a little bit of uh, insult to injury added by losing the bronze medal match. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was not ideal. I, I, I think if he'd had it to do over again, he might not have gone and he, and he did it for all the right reasons for his country and all of that. And, but personally he suffered and ideally he would have taken good time off after Wimbledon might not have played Canada, but he definitely would have played Cincinnati. And that would have been, that would have been ideal with just however many matches he could have gotten in Cincinnati and come into the open with that, which was much more recent match play. And then almost inevitably he would have been sharper in the early rounds. I, there's, I, there's no doubt that decision was one that, it certainly didn't help him. And the question is, how much did it hurt him by going to Tokyo? Right. Um, so, you know, somebody who didn't have a lot of matches, definitely not. Um, I'm going to switch gears to the women's side here uh, with Leila Fernandez and Emma Raducanu. Yeah. Clearly, this was the final you were predicting, right, Steve? You know, going in. You didn't, you didn't hear me make that call? I'm kidding you. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, none of, no us. none of us did. So, yeah. uh, you know. Have you ever seen anything like this? I mean, I can't think of one, you know, unprecedented. This is completely unprecedented, you know, in the open era for a qualifier to come through like this and not even lose five games in the main draw, just lost one, just lost five games in the second round of qualies. And then to right, go through right. like that. And okay, she didn't have maybe the most difficult draw. Uh, I think definitely the sliding doors moment was Ash Barty, you know, losing from 5-2 up double break right. in that third set because I'm so curious to see what would have happened, you know, had Ash. And clearly that was a pattern for Ash you know, in the first three rounds, dropping her serve um, yeah, at the very final was, moment. And I saw the, right. No, she was not so. closing matches out well, and it caught up to her against Shelby Rogers. But I would really would have thought with the insurance break of 5-2, 15-love. Right. I mean, she just, yeah, that, that, that was a very big development. But to get, and, and I, I don't worry about Ash uh, recovering psychologically from that loss. She'll be fine, but it was too bad for the tournament. I would have liked to have seen her move on and it would have been interesting to see how that would have played out. But I think you're you back to your original point. Raducanu, I mean, yeah, one seven five set in the qualifying. You're still playing decent or decent players even in the qualifying. And yes, her draw was much, on paper, her draw is much easier than Fernandez's by far. Right. But having said that, Nobody, nobody blitzes through a field like no. that except a, a top-of-the-line player. That's why the scores were so one-sided, because she was playing like a top-10 player. Not, right. not like somebody who was climbing to number 23 in the world from God right. knows where. Where is she come, coming in? I don't know. Right, 150 coming in. but yeah, 150, and then she goes all the way to 23. This was only her played. fourth you know, main draw WTA event. I mean, she played Nottingham, yeah. and she'd gotten to the fourth round of Wimbledon. I know she yeah. lost an ITF. Uh, she lost a final to Clara Towson and then right. like played you know one more event before, but that that's about yeah. it. I mean, this- that's it. And that's the reason, of course, that's why that ranking at the 150 is so misleading. She's a much better player than that. But no, where yeah. I became convinced, okay, it's one thing the first, all those rounds, and it's one thing all the way up to Benchich. 
But then, you know, you're, you're how about the up. win against Saros Rivas Tormo 6061? Because Saros Rivas wow. Tormo, you know, one of the most improved players yeah, uh, of 2021. Great. And, you know, yeah. I mean, she really makes you work hard and grind for every point. So that was. Oh, no, that, that was proof, yes. But, but I mean, really accomplished polished players of the, uh, someone right. of the stature of right. to take her apart. And then everybody was pretty excited about Sakari, who'd come off a good win over Andrescu in a really beautifully played match under the lights. Yeah. And, and Sakari has those early opportunities to break. I love 40 at 15, 40. She can't get it. Seven break points. The, yeah. Emma's Emma's seven. Yeah. And Emma then pulls away in that match. So by that, once she did that, I was convinced there was a prediction I did make that she would beat Fernandez in the final. Uh, and I thought it would be straight. And I, my call was actually three and four rather than four. And oh, three I was, I was, I was pretty close to, I said six, four, seven, five in the final. I thought she'd finally lose because yeah. of Layla's fight. I, you know, definitely, yeah. especially in that second set, but it was a phenomenally played final. Um, you know, I really thought. Oh, you know, oh yeah. And I think that, I think that, uh, yeah, Raducanu, her second serve returns were just too piercing. And then she contributed to the very low first serve percentage of Fernandez because Fernandez knew she would not get away with the second. She, she just could not afford to miss her first serve. And it put a lot of pressure on her. And then off the ground, I thought, you know, that that Fernandez countered well and changed direction well when she could, but that Raducanu had more control. It was more in her hands, I thought. And she pressed a little here and there, but she played really well. Only moment I didn't like was I thought that Fernandez should have been a little bit more understanding of the medical timeout at the end, which was a necessity mm-hmm. for the ble- the bleeding knee. And she looked as if she was a bit skeptical or uh, mocking it. Or I, I thought that that could have been handled with a bit more sensitivity. But that's a, right. that's a minor grievance because overall I thought they both conducted themselves with great grace and and dignity both and played a whale of a match that. The, the scoreline doesn't begin to tell you how good they were and how entertained the fans were. And I've been there much for so many straight set women's finals among veterans that weren't nearly as absorbing as this one was. And the good, the good news Vonch, is that you got to believe that, I mean, whatever happens in 2022, the, the, these two are going to have some big years ahead of them, some really spectacular years and perhaps even a great rivalry between them. You know, at ages 18 and 19, I just feel like they're going to improve markedly uh, over the next few years. And they may have some growing pains. They may take their lumps next year, uh, suffer some difficult losses next year. However, uh, they'll they'll bounce back and they're both too good not to endure in the long run. And I see them both winning uh, their share of major championships. Yep. Um, You know, totally agree. But I think it also just depends on how you know, Raducanu especially, you know, handles the fame of being the first Brit, you know, to yeah. a major since Virginia Wade. And right, just, the, right. you know, just the, the you know prospect of being on every single front cover. You know, I just hope Raducanu has the right team around her to help her, you know, cope with the pressures of, of being, uh, you know, on this, in such spotlight. It's so unprecedented. It helped. It helped her that it was in New York. Obviously, that she she felt the pressure a little bit after the nice run at Wimbledon, and and everybody was a bit worried about her there. And then she, she moved past it. And I'm encouraged that having been through this now and having dealt with it, there was just never a sign of doubt, never a hesitancy in her at all uh, throughout the tournament. 
And you would have thought it was going to hit her somewhere along the line against Ben Chichikari or maybe the final. But I was convinced by the time of the final that she was just too, too confident. So I, I, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm even more than cautiously optimistic that in the long run, she's going to be fine and she'll deal with the rigors. She'll deal with the, the pressures and all those expectations. And there'll be people around her that will, will help her with that. But this was a very important, significant first step for her. Yeah, totally agree. And then, you know, if we go to Leila Fernandez's side of the draw, obviously taking out Naomi Osaka, Kerber, Svitolina, who played a great match herself, top five player in the world. Um, and then the match against Sabalenka, that's where it really got interesting for me because, you know, I came out of that match really wondering how much did Sabalenka beat herself again and how much credit uh, should go to Leila Fernandez because obviously she's a great problem solver. She um, She's great what? at figuring out solutions on the fly. Uh, and she's- Von, sorry to interrupt you. I asked you earlier about percentages on Novak physically versus emotionally and pressure. So I'm going to give you percentages, if you don't mind, on what I think happened with Sabalenka and Fernandez. I think it was about six, and this is taking nothing away from Layla, but I would say 60% Sabalenka beat herself. Yeah, agreed. And I, I don't mean that at all because because I, it still took a great, mental it took a lot of fortitude from Fernandez to still work her way through that match but Sabalenka started so brilliantly she's up 4-1 in the first set she she just completely uh, imploded there at a time when she looked like she had utter control of it off the ground and on serve she was just blowing her off the court and then she still managed to come back after losing that that heartbreaking first set to win the second but then at the very end once again after coming back again in the third that last game of the match was just dismal. And I, I just, you saw how distraught she was afterwards. They had some shots of her in the locker room lying down and looking really uh, understandably dismayed by what had happened. But I don't understand why this keeps happening. She's too good. She's had this experience. She plays Barty in these finals. She gets to the semis of Wimbledon. She's back in the semis here. Why would somebody who has her kind of experience now continue to implode that way and continue to beat herself. And those words that you use of beating herself were just what I used with a friend who had picked her to win the tournament. I said, you know, it's a good pick, except we just don't know if she's going to beat herself. And in the end, sadly, I think she did. Yeah, I think that beating herself is a little bit more of a mental thing because, I, I mean, apart like her game, when it's on, it's just phenomenal. I don't know how you stop that power from the baseline. Yeah. And Well, it's power and it's controlled aggression. It's controlled right. aggression, too, because it's not reckless. She's showing she can make those shots over and over again, game in, game out, measure right. them perfectly. And then she has the serve that is pretty unstoppable as well. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it, that was a disappointing setback. Not that she lost to Layla. There's no, Layla she was in good company. Just just that she, the way that she lost. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we'll see if she can, you know, uh, you know rectify a little bit of those those mental hurdles for her because now she's been in four, she's gone deep in four tournaments, the 2018 U.S. Open and then three this year's. And in all of those matches, she's lost six, four in the third. And at some yeah. point in those matches, she's ended up beating herself apart from the one against Pushkova, which I thought was a pretty well-played match by both. That very well-played match. And that was just a server's contest and, and Pushkova just outserved her that day. But yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. I, I it, Look, it's some progress. It's, Going deep into these majors, okay, she's made some strides, but this this was not a match under the circumstances. And it would have been fascinating to see her play Emma in the final. 
Right. That would have been really interesting. Yeah. Now the question is just where is the women's game headed? Because um, you know, while we were just talking about Sabalenka, I just realized Sabalenka and Sakari are the only two repeat semifinalists of this whole year. And you know, <laughs> they didn't go on and, and win. Yeah. So and then obviously you have so I mean uh you have Sviantek obviously last year who won twenty eight games, who lost just twenty eight games and went yeah. the French Open, and then she made all fourth rounds uh, or better this year. So there's some consistency there. And then you have Krajikova who's backing up her results pretty well, but we haven't really seen, you know, that but, 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 players and that continuity of like them splitting majors and rivalries beginning to build because actually I think Barty Sabalenka were starting to build a really nice rivalry. But it, was, it just right. happened in the majors and right, we're just we're in a phase where we're just figuring it out. It's a transitional phase, I guess. Yeah, I mean you 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 alluded to Sviantek and Krajikova. I mean, especially with Sviantek, yes, that was consistency, but that didn't expect I expected more. Mm-hmm. given how dominant she was at the 2020 French. Now, it wasn't a disaster by any means, but she seems right. mu- she seemed at the French 2020 to be like a, almost like a happy-go-lucky kid, thrilled to be out there, performing magnificently and doing everything well. The returns, you know, the, the, the consistency off the ground, the aggression when she needed it, it was all there. This year, right. she looked very strained at times. And I hope I hope that was just more of a sophomore... Uh, jinx experience or you know uh, that that she can bounce back next year with some vibrancy and some exuberance again because that's what struck me about her at, at Roland Garros 2020 so mm-hmm. you're right that I that continuity is a word I use a lot and when I talk about women's tennis and my my it's my lament when it comes to women's tennis however these two Fernandez and 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 Raducanu and their long-term potential is so great that I I, I, I had a very different feeling about watching them go out and, and, and play a final like that and thinking about where it could all lead. And that could lead to some, as I said earlier, I think to what could be a, a really compelling rivalry between the two where they meet, I'm not saying three times a year in major finals, but say over the next five years, maybe we see them in four or five more of these over that span of five years. And it becomes yeah. a very important rivalry in the women's game. And, and potentially they go back and forth and they make each other better players. That, that, that's what encourages me about the U.S. Open final of 2021. Yeah. And then obviously we have to talk about Naomi Osaka because her she was up 7-5, 6-5, you know, yeah. the match yeah. against Fernandez. And really, she just doesn't seem to be in a good place uh, mentally, um, you know, at all. You know, even after she lost, she basically just said, I, you know, I love you know, in tears, you know, fighting the yep. tears, but basically saying that, you know, when I win, it's a big relief. And so when I, and when I lose, it's, you know, it's a big dis- disappointment. And you just hope for her sake, she gets her mental health, you know, right back where it needs to be to competing again. And because she's yeah. such, so important for women's tennis and she's, she's phenomenal on hard courts. So. Yeah. No, I agree with all of that. And that was what you're saying. What happened to her out there was a reaffirmation of her, the fact that she is going through a very difficult mental struggle mm-hmm. and the way she responded to it did that was sad for her up till seven, five, six, five. She's cruising on serve for the most part. And you expected her to serve it out and say, okay, so at least when you lose your serve at six, five, then you just go right into a tie break and maybe you can get it done there. But it was in the tie break that she threw her racket down a few times and that their signs were there. And then it carried over into early in the third set when she played a, she's, seemed to be half not trying for a few games. She got it back totally after that. And her forehand was completely gone. Her forehand, forehand completely went away. Totally awry. 
totally awry. And of course, that can happen to her on given days because it's pretty flat for the most part. There's not a great margin for error there. Yeah, she, no has to be, great... she has to have really good footwork, I think, to get her forehand right. And it's just, it's just not there because... No, I mean, there, there was, it's not a, the footwork's very important, but you also, have, there's just, there's not a lot of safety net. I'd like to see yeah. her have some, a, a little bit of a backup for him and a little bit more topspin for when she needs it. But there's no doubt that that was the shot that cost her. We were in accord on that. And yeah, yeah, it was sad to see her do that press conference and talk about not knowing when she's going to play tennis again. And it was very moving and. Uh, I, 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 we need her back. I, I, I'd like to have her back in the forefront again with Barty competing against the, the two teenagers and, and, and a bunch of the others in the mix as well. And the women's game would be very healthy if that were the case, but there's no telling when, when we're going to see Osaka again. Maybe it's not until, I hope she takes enough time. Even if that means not coming back before Wimbledon next year, that's fine. That's fine. But be sure that her, she's cleared her head and that emotionally she feels strong again. And don't rush the return. Maybe this time she did because yeah. she, she missed Wimbledon after the French, but there she was at the open and she hadn't played well over the summer. And maybe that, that was just too swift a, a return. She may have needed more time. And I hope she'll consider that now when she's figuring out when to return in, uh, in 2022. Yeah. All well said. And definitely it'd be nice to have Andrescu in the mix as well, but you know, still she keeps getting injured and, and it's just, it's so tough to know with her. She played beautifully against Sakari, but once again, she got hurt. I just can't believe that it's ever, it's a problem that's ever going to be resolved. And it's so sad because the ingenuity of this girl and the shot-making uh, possibilities and the creativity and the feistiness, she's great to watch. And I think of the U.S. Open final against Serena two years ago and how beautifully she played that match. And even when she almost blew the 5-1 lead in the second set, she still had the wherewithal defend Serena off at the end and get it done in straight. So I, I, I would love to see her in the forefront, but I just don't trust her body. For some reason, she's just more vulnerable physically than just about any other top woman player, maybe, maybe in a league of her own. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, to wrap this up a little bit, you know, I, I, I just like to ask you, how was it like going back to the U S open, uh, you know, since, having fans back on, obviously last year we didn't have any fans. Um, you know, how, how, how was that whole experience like for you going to a tennis event again? Well, it was, it, it, I, I really, I personally enjoyed being back out there again. I mean, I started going to the U S championships in 1965 as a kid. And then uh, I'd covered every tournament from 1974 on. Yeah, it was a very nice feeling. And, and, and to feel the, the exhilaration of the fans and their appreciation of being back. You sensed that, that, that there was a different, different outlook for the fans too. Uh, conversely, the press room was a bit uh, of a jarring experience because they, they weren't allowing as many reporters on site. And therefore it seemed at times a bit like a ghost town. And I, I understand what they were doing, but it just, that there wasn't the usual feeling in there when you wandered in and out between matches, but the feeling of sitting in the press section and watching uh, that, that I'm really glad I had the chance to be there for the men's semis and finals and to experience that again, because I missed it immensely last year. Yeah. Must've been a, must've been a great experience. Um, you know, definitely, you know, hopefully we can get back to a bit more normal, normalcy in the press rooms as well. And with fans and, yeah, you know, you know, let's hope, let's hope yeah. so, Vine. but you know, obviously it's a tricky period ahead. We don't know. We don't even know what, 
the status of the Australian Open is at this point right. and allow how they're going to get all those players in, whether they're going to be able to have fans. But all things considered, we were very fortunate this year with the way that the year unfolded from a kind of a tricky French Open with the crowds and curfews and, and then to Wimbledon improving as the fortnight moved along to a U.S. Open that was robust from beginning to end. Right. Well, Steve, this has been an absolute pleasure as always. Uh, it's fun to impact and unpack uh, the Grand Slam and get your thoughts. And, you know, it was a phenomenal U.S. Open one that I'll definitely remember forever. So. Yeah. Me as well, Vanch. And uh, as usual, I think we, we are thinking a lot alike and I always enjoy exchanging views with you and look forward to doing this again uh, in the future. Yep. Take care, stay safe and healthy and uh, you know, hope to see you around soon. Okay. Thank you, Vanch.